Impact, income, and influence. Do you want the most powerful, actionable takeaways from today's episode? Go to actionbullets.com to grab the quick, easy-to-read takeaways that will help you change your life and grow your business. Or you can click the Action Bullets link in the description below. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to Grow Your Impact, Income, and Influence, the number one show for reaching millions of people online. I'm your host, Steve Werner. Today, I am joined by Dove Gordon. Dove runs Profitable Relationships, ProfitableRelationships.com. I met Dove last week, runs an amazing mastermind, and I wanted to bring him onto the show. And he actually had an idea. He was like, I really want to actually interview you and turn the mic around. I thought that was a great idea. So this show is going to be completely different than anything we have done before. Help me welcome Dove to the stage. Dove, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. I wanted to interview you because you've got great stories. Thanks. You know, you've um, done some great things. And I thought, well, I mean, you know, I, I've, I have to imagine that many of your listeners, if not most, don't even know. We tend to assume often that the things that we know, everybody knows. So I figured um, it, would, it could be very interesting to people who are already in your audience. I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, it is true. Like you, we think everybody knows our stories, but you can never, you can never tell them enough and most people don't. So I, first off, um, thank you so much for offering to interview me. That is a gift and it was really cool to think of. Um, secondly, like you have a really cool story. We're going to put you on the podcast here in a little bit, but we'll get to that later, I guess. Today we, we focus on Steve Warner. Where are you from, Steve? Uh, originally, originally, where'd you grow up? A uh, small town, Pennsylvania. Uh, originally born in Hershey and then grew up between mm. Philly and Harrisburg. My parents split uh, and I split my time between Philadelphia and a small town called Finley, Ohio. It's uh, the home of Ben Roethlisberger. If you're a Steelers fan, you know he came from there. Uh, that's it. That's it. That's um, a small town. Yeah. Or Hershey. Is there anything in Hershey uh, other than Hershey? Uh, chocolate. So it is the home of Hershey's chocolate. So if you like Hershey's bars with almonds, that's one of my favorites. Yes. Reese's peanut butter cups. The whole town smells but, like chocolate. That's like, you know, almost can't do better than that unless you add coffee. <laughs> there's coffee shops there. There's coffee shops. They actually have them. Um, so there's a place called Hershey Park and it's yeah, a little. I was there park. as a kid. Okay. Yeah, you you know all it's about little. It. I remember it as big, but I was little. <laughs> right. Um, we went there every summer growing up. I mean, it's uh, the whole town smells like chocolate. Then you go to this amusement park. They sell chocolate. They have rides, and they have a tour of the chocolate factory that's like on a monorail that you go through. It's kind of like the Epcot, uh, we are the world thing. Only it's all about chocolate. Got it. So you're splitting your time between um, Pennsylvania and Ohio. I think you said. Yeah. Growing up, uh, my dad and my step family lived in Philly. So I would go spend time with them during the summer, uh, usually either Thanksgiving or Christmas and Easter. Um, I would go out there. I would spend time with them. So I had three stepsisters, which were awesome because I grew up as an only child. So I was happy to have some siblings. Uh, that was in Philly, big city. And then 
the school year I would spend in Finley, Ohio. And then actually my mom was a teacher at a county school. So county school is a smaller school, K through 12 uh, outside of the city. So my graduating class was 28 people, super small, um, going back and forth. Um, I, I hope you weren't in the bottom uh, of such a small class, but you don't have to tell us. <laughs> I, uh, I think I, I, I sneaked, sneaked into, I always tell people I graduated uh, 18th in my class. I just don't tell them that there were 27 people in it. Um, well, you know what, the, the, the other thing, of course, is, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's usually, how, how, how does that go? Um, I think Dan Kennedy, who I know you, you know, will probably end up mentioning later as well, but is it, was it him? I'm sure someone else gets credit for this. You know, was it that uh, um, B student, B, how does it work? That uh, A player, B players hire A players or, or something, something like that. B, B, B students hire the A student. I forget how it goes, but. A students hire the no, I, I've heard, I know what you're saying, but I can't, I can't remember. It's like the uh, A students hire A players or it, no, we're getting it all wrong. Yeah, yeah anyway. well, you can look it up. So um, um, anyway, so what, where'd you go after that? You moved um, college? Um, I went to college, small, small college, uh, north of Columbus, Ohio, looked a lot like uh, Harry Potter land. Um classic like stone architecture super small town i'm, I'm going to interrupt us all right i found that steve jobs has a saying that a players hire a players b players hire c players c players hire d players um i don't think that's what i was looking for <laughs> <laughs> that's okay that's i mean all that's right. true that is so uh that yeah. steve jobs is correct yeah um, but Okay. Anyway, so uh, everyone, you can search for that if you're looking for it. But that's not the quote I was looking for, but it's uh, pretty good. All right. In real time here. Yeah. So you went to a small college. Went to a small college. Um, dropped out my freshman year because I had dated a girl that I thought we were going to get married and all of that. So I ended up dropping out. I also, to be really honest, had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, I was kind of told that, you know, you have to go to school, you have to go to college. My mom was a very, very firm believer in that. I was not, but I went because she said I needed to. Um, ended up dropping out for two years. And I think it's one of the best things that happened to me. Um, people told me I'd never go back to college, blah, blah, blah. My life was going to be a downward spiral. And like, this was the start of like me just being like, kind of giving the middle finger to everybody that says stuff like that. Cause I was just like, whatever, like I'm here, I'm having fun. I'm making good money. So at the time I waited tables, I worked at a place called Ponderosa and then I was at Applebee's. Um, where, where were you? Uh, Finley, Ohio. I went back. Oh, still in Finley. Okay. So back yeah, to I Finley, went, Ohio. <clears throat> so I went to small, small college North of Columbus, which was about a two hour drive. Um, and then when I dropped out of school, I ended up moving back home. Uh, I was going to get an apartment and my mom was like, no, 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 you are staying here. I think she wanted to try to get me back into school too. And I just told her, I was like, why do you care? Like, I'm, I understand why she wanted me to have a better life. Yeah. 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 All that stuff. But like I was making good money. I was taking care of myself. I, I worked. I mean, we didn't talk about growing up that much, but I mean, I worked from the time I was eight onward. Um, I went to college with money in my pocket. I had more, I had like 15 K in the bank when I went to school. 
Um, when I came home from school, I still had plenty of money. Um, I worked all the time and I liked work. I think, uh, I think that's one of the secrets of like a fulfilling life is to enjoy what you do. And it's not, it's not the grass is always greener. There's a job that I'm going to like better somewhere else. It's teach yourself to have fun doing whatever you're doing. Um, I mean, part of that I'm outgoing. I like people. So I liked waiting tables. I did really well at it. Um, I did really well at bartending and anyway, out of school for two years. Um, and while I was doing that, like I grew up a little bit. Right. And I realized like, as much as I like bartending and I like waiting tables, maybe I should go back to school. So I did. Um, I actually went on a, uh, I went down to visit some friends that were at school and this would have been, I think it was Christmas. It would have been Thanksgiving ish of 99. And they have something at the school called the bike trip. So the bike trip is a psychology class where you bicycle like pedal bicycle from San Francisco to Tijuana and then Tijuana to Phoenix. And you do this over January Okay. Well, and the whole the whole point is it's small it's small group psychology. So they put you in a group of five or six people. You carry all your stuff on your bike. You camp almost every night. Uh, you stay in some churches and a few uh, like high schools and stuff like that. But one winter in mid Ohio is not somewhere that you want to be. There's no skiing. There's very little skiing. It's cold. It's miserable. It's wet. They don't plow the roads very well. So the, the, the psychology teacher at this college, Dr. Randy Cronk was his name, uh, put together this bike trip and they did it every year. So I went down to visit some friends and two of my friends were going on this trip. So I went to, I went to like their meeting with them because I was like, well, whatever, I'm going to go to this meeting with you. And uh, the guy at the meeting, Dr. Cronk was like, well, do you want to go? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And he said, cool. Um, I think it was $2,000. If I remember, it might've been 2,100, somewhere in there. He was like, cool. If you can get me a check um, within the next two or three weeks, you can come on the trip. It'll be great. So I went back home. I told my mom I was going. She was worried because, I mean, riding your bike 1,800 miles is a little scary, I guess, for a parent. But she was like, okay, she understood by this point, like she's not controlling me. I, I definitely had a mind of my own. She also knew I was pretty adventurous. Um, and I think she was happy that I was doing something with the school on that trip. Um, I realized like I was spending time with my friends who I'd met in college and I realized like I should probably go back to school. Like I realized that I started to see the difference between people who were thinking about how to make more money, start a business, do something different. Um, and my friends that worked in the restaurant industry, which every night was, you know, finish work, drink as much as we can, get four hours of sleep, show up the next morning. Um, so I was like, okay, that seems like a good idea. So I went back to school the next year, um, ended up doing really well. I did a semester abroad, uh, which is, I did a semester in Italy um, as a fine art major. I was fine art and uh, psychology were my majors. Ended up you doing majored this. majored in fine art and psychology, like uh, correct. It was one major, not two. No, it was two majors. Two majors. Okay. Two majors. So you so you went from waiting tables back. You, you dove dove in fully. 
Yes. Yep. I, well, I went back to school and I was like, well, what do I like doing? Well, first I thought I was going to do education. Um, I actually went and I, uh, I volunteered for a year for that first year um, in a fifth grade classroom. And it was horrible. Um, it wasn't horrible because of the kids. The kids were great. The teacher was great. What was horrible is I learned that our school system is horrid, horridly broken in the U.S., um, it doesn't teach kids how to do anything and it definitely doesn't teach them to like think creatively. Instead, it thinks it forces them into a very, very rigid framework, which doesn't serve them. Um, and doesn't so, seem to be getting better. No, it's getting worse. And actually in having conversations with the teacher who ran the classroom, I learned that it was getting worse. And I was like, well, I'm not going into, I'm not going to bang my head against the wall for the rest of my life trying to teach kids. So I wanted to be an art teacher. Which is, which is tragic, really, because uh, if, if, you know, they say that, um, I guess it's a similar observation to the one I, neither of us could fully remember, but, you know, you put a great person in a poor system, you end up with poor results. And, you know, you, you would have been a great teacher for many great kids over the years, uh, but you saw the system and it, it drove yeah. you away pretty rapidly. You grasped it fast. Yeah. Oh, well, I, so what happened was I went back to school and I was talking to the guidance counselor and I said, I want to be an art teacher. Um, and they had, so my GPA at the time, because my first year I wasn't fully engaged was about a 1.8. And they said, well, you can't go into the education program without a 3.0. And I said, well, wouldn't it be more important that I actually love what I do and I connect with kids? No, you have to have this. And I said, well, screw you guys. I'm going to go volunteer. So I went and volunteered and that's, I mean, I was like, the teacher told me, she was like, you'd be great. But she was like, you're just going to bang your head against the wall and you're going to hate it. And I was like, well, why would I do that? So I had, I was in art classes. I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to finish my art degree because I enjoy it. Um, but how do you make money as an artist, right? Like you have very limited options to make a good living. Um, and money, money has always been important to me. Um, I mean, my mom sat me down. It was right after the divorce. I think I shared the story with you, but right after the divorce, my mom sat me down. I was throwing a fit in the mall because I wanted a pair of Air Jordans. I think they were 98 bucks. And how old were you? I, eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And I wanted these Air Jordans. I remember sitting on the bench like, rah, 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 rah. and my mom was like, we don't have money for things like that. Um, if you want those, you need to go get a job. And I think she said it in passing, but I went home like the whole way home. I was like, what am I going to do? I need to figure out, I need to make money. Um, so I went home and I like that day got the lawnmower out of the garage and just walked down the street, knocking on doors. And the next day I had the money to go buy Air Jordan. So I rode my bike to the mall, bought the Jordans and came home with them. And my mom was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And I just started mowing yards and raking leaves and like hustle, like everyone on my street and like the two or three streets around me knew who I was because I was always knocking on doors saying, Hey, do you like, do you need your leaves raked? Do you need your car washed? Do you need your yard mowed? Do you need stuff done? And my mom was like, well, you, she can't, she didn't know what to do because I think she, she would have never done that. Right. That's not her response to this challenge, but she was just like, well, and she didn't know whether to be supportive or to quiet me down or what to do. So after a couple of weeks, she was like, well, you need to go pay for the gas. So I went and bought a gas can and I walked to the gas station that was, you know, 
couple blocks away and gave him like 20 bucks to fill up the gas can, whatever it was, 10 bucks. And like came home and my mom was just, I don't think she knew what to do, but between that and then just like anything, I, yeah, I just got really comfortable with that, which I mean, I was outgoing already, but I think looking at later becoming a waiter and a bartender, like I waited tables and I made more money than my manager. I remember my manager sat me down when I was 17 because I, I worked at Ponderosa and a normal section at Ponderosa was eight tables. And if you've never been to a Ponderosa, it's an all you can eat buffet and you can order a steak or chicken or shrimp that comes from the grill. And the way that it works is you sit down at the table, you, you pay at the front, they give you a ticket and a little like table tent, right? And your server is just responsible for getting you drinks, clearing your, your plates and bringing you whatever you ordered from the grill. Most people who waited tables there made maybe a dollar per table. Well, I looked at it as how can I help these people? So a lot of people came in with kids. I learned some simple magic. I learned how to pull a quarter from behind a kid's ear. I learned how to juggle and I learned how to grab attention. Like if you stand in the middle of a couple kids and you snap at them and you start jug like snap, like snap your fingers, start juggling. They all look at you. And then I'd carry around a can of like whipped cream and I'd give them a bowl of whipped cream and put it on the table. Parents loved me because a lot of them would bring large families, three, four, five kids. They're on date night. Like they're trying to like, just, you know, keep their crap together. And like, I would entertain their kids for 30 seconds and the kids would sit down and eat, or I'd go make a hot fudge Sunday with them. Or like, I could do that. Well, what take them into the kitchen? Uh, maybe. Oh, I mean, where'd you make it? Careful. Table? You can well, because if you take a kid into the kitchen and he gets slips and falls or messes up. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm trying to, you said I would, I would take them to make a hot fudge Sunday. So that, oh, at the table? Hot fudge, gotcha. Hot yeah. fudge Sunday is a Sunday bar. There's a Sunday bar, no. but I would be like, got come it, with it. me. Take them to the bar. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I did was a normal section was eight tables. Well, I learned if I memorized everybody's ticket, I could take twice as many tables and they didn't believe that I could do this at first, but I did it. I was, I was 15 years old when I started there and I did it within two or three months. Um, I just learned, like I, I literally read or heard somewhere about like, using phonetics, right? To remember things. I just started training my brain to do it. And I got to the point that I could memorize everybody in the restaurant. I could memorize their stuff. So I started taking a double section. So I would have 16 tables where other people would have eight and I would run. I mean, literally wear running shoes and like run around the restaurant. But there were, I mean, this was mid nineties. This was the mid nineties. So I sat down one Saturday and I made, I made about $700 in a day. And my manager was like, I don't make that much money. And I was like, I, I don't know what to tell you. You can wait tables. And this was the start of, so for most of you out there, just so you know, the managers in the restaurants don't make as much as the servers or they make about the same. The servers usually do better with way less responsibility. Um, this was true at Applebee's. This was true in fine dining as I got older. Um, anyway, we're way down a rabbit hole with, with, is waiting. that because of tips or tips are just your manage 
as a whole, restaurants make about 10% profit. So if they're making, let's say they do a million a year, that means that the restaurant is making about $100,000. That's a very skinny profit margin. They don't pay their management well. Management and what they sell you as is management is you get to be in charge of everybody, which some people that appeals to, right? Like one out of 10 is like, yes, I want that. But most of them do not make that much money. Um, they make somewhere 50 to 75K a year. Um, most servers, if you're good as a server, you're going to make that serving or bartending. Um, that's, yeah, I would, I would say most, most servers make about the same as their managers with way less responsibility. I mean, you show up, you talk to people, you run some food around, but this is also why restaurants are notorious for having bad management. They don't train your management's never trained in restaurants unless you work for let us entertain you or a good restaurant group they don't put money into training managers they literally we do what's it's called sink or swim here you get to be the manager figure it out and it's like well what okay um that's a whole different story but doesn't have anything to do with marketing hey i just wanted to take a quick break from this episode are you enjoying the story so far would you like to know how to use storytelling and story selling in your business? Check the show notes down below or go to storyselling.how to grab my free mini course on story selling and start implementing this in your business right now. All right, let's jump back to the episode. Well, so you learned how to grab attention and that is something that I imagine served you in many ways and that's evolved ever since. Yeah, I would... I would definitely agree with that. The so waiting tables. I waited tables through college. Um, mm-hmm. but I went abroad. Uh, I spent a semester in Italy. When I came back, I was first off. Like, if you haven't traveled abroad, if you have not, tra- I know. I mean, Dove, you get this right away. Um, opening up your thought process and your, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Like it just changes your perspective so drastically because you learn that the world is really, really big. Like there's so many differences mm-hmm. and that our, our existence, our view on something is not binary. Like I'm sure we agree on a lot of things. I'm sure we disagree on a lot of things. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It matters if I like you as a person and if I believe you have integrity, right? In America, we're there's such a problem with this around whether it's racial lines or whether it's pol- political lines or religious lines. But the thing at the end of the day, it's so interesting to me that their thought, the modern thought, which I, I believe is wrong, um, is everybody, sh- no one should have an opinion on anything right? Like you should be whatever. It's fine. It's fine. I don't have strong opinions. I don't want to enforce my opinion that that puts everyone in a victim mentality, which I think is 100% wrong. Instead, 30 years ago, you could have a Republican and a Democrat sit at the same table. They could share their views openly and they could have a conversation about something else, right? Tolerance, Mm -hmm. acceptance. You know what? You may not agree with me, but I, I love you regardless. You're a good person. We'll get along. We may not agree on everything. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Nowadays, it has switched to, you don't agree with me, you're wrong, I hate you, die. Like, 
the, that's been, and it's like, that's such a horrible way to view anything in the because, world. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's you mentioned earlier that people are not learning, students, kids are not learning how to think. Mm -hmm. being taught what to think not being taught how to think and you know we can go down that rabbit hole but you know yeah probably our time is spent spent on other things um so so um great so you you went to italy you were there for a year studying, i was studying art. got to see all kinds of great stuff got to eat amazing food had enough gelato to oh my goodness gelato so good anyway um, when I came back, so it exposed me to all this like different thinking. And like, I met a bunch of expats. I met people from around the world, exposed me to all this different mm -hmm. thinking. And then on the plane ride back, somebody gave me rich dad, poor dad, um, Robert Kiyosaki book. If you haven't read it, it is the gateway drug for entrepreneurship. Um, somebody gave it to me and they said, Hey, I think you'd really enjoy this. And I think we had talked a little bit. At the time, my plan uh, was to go, I wanted to do, I wanted to actually run homeschools. Um, I was, I was playing around with this idea of Montessori schools and like how I still wanted to teach people, um, but I wanted to do it privately so that I could charge enough money to make it viable and actually do things my way. Um, but I had talked about, I want to buy a duplex. Because of some, yeah, exactly. You know, grade. I don't know what your, I don't know what your GPA was by the time you finished, but uh, you know, there's a lot of silly criteria. Yes. Um, the so my GPA was actually quite a bit better. I graduated with like a three eight, three nine. Um, because when that's, I came back, my my attitude had remarkable. Changed. Well, that's yeah. I Did, mean, my attitude had completely I, changed. I, plus. You, you had to live with your previous, uh, your earlier GPA, right? I mean, you had that, that was averaged in. I, I don't know exactly how that works because it doesn't yeah. sound possible to get that high. Like, oh, no. I mean, it was whatever. It was one credit it, or it was one year of classes. Most of those classes I retook. Um, I see. If, I mean, if you fail uh, a class, you replaced need to your original. It. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Correct. Um, I think I had to be way above four. Well, I mean, it's also very, um, I mean, your college was a long time ago for me, but the the first year of classes, I think I maybe had maybe twenty credits. Um, I had to retake half of those classes, and the classes I didn't retake weren't weren't that heavy weighted, right? Um, it it might be obvious from my questions, but I did not go to college. <laughs> it's all good. Um, <laughs> anyway, I came back. I had talked. I talked to the guy who lended me Rich Dad Poor Dad. And we had talked about real estate investing. And I said, you know, well, my, my goal would be to retire down the road, own a couple, like own a duplex or own a triplex um, that, you know, pays some income so that I have a solid retirement. Um, so he gave me this book and I got off the plane thinking about, okay, maybe I need to buy a duplex or a triplex or some kind of investment real estate, not not like a whole bunch of thought, but it was it was an interesting book and I knew I needed to do it. So I went back to, uh, at the time, Applebee's, which is where I worked, and I wanted my job back. And they didn't have a spot for me. Um, so I started picking up shifts. And 
would I, the way I would do it is I would go into the restaurant uh, at four o'clock. That's when everybody shows up. Everybody comes on the clock at four thirty for a night shift, and I would just say, "Who wants to go home? I'll work your shift. I'm happy to work." Well, the manager started getting pissed off about this because he would make the schedule based on people he wanted to work with, and then I would show up and I would mess it up. And he would he it was more of a power trip for him than anything because he didn't like that I was doing this. And he said, we just like, we don't like nobody's quitting. And now people are complaining about not making enough money because you're taking their shifts. And I was like, I'm not taking their shifts. They're offering them to me. And it, what it is, is people show up hungover, tired, whatever. And they, they would want to go home and then they would be like, Oh dude, that guy made 200 bucks instead of me making $200. And then, so it led to this weird thing. So that went on for maybe, I don't know, a month or two. And then they fired me. They were like, you can't, you can't do this anymore. You're done. And we don't want you working here anymore because I, I guess I've always challenged kind of status quo. So I went home and I was still in school. Um, this was my junior, junior year of school. And, uh, I was, I was like, well, okay. Um, I want to buy a duplex and I'm going to start a business all in the same day. Um, I'm going to start a business all in the same day. Mm-hmm. So I went home and I started cleaning. I started with cleaning houses. So I talked to a couple of my professors and I started cleaning their houses quickly. That led to me cleaning churches. Uh, one of the professors was on the board at their church and he said, Hey, we need somebody to clean our church. So I went and got bonded and got insurance and ended up, uh, cleaning churches. I cleaned one church. So I was getting paid $500 a week to clean a church, which took me four hours versus a house, which paid like a third of that. So started cleaning houses, then churches, um, and then banks, uh, because I was bonded and insured. I took out an ad in the newspaper. Uh, there were still papers back then. And, uh, a bank called me to come in and give them a quote. And my quote was I guess way less than they were paying a commercial cleaning crew that wasn't doing a good job. So I had two churches, two churches and four banks. The the bank was had four branches around town. Um I was making really good money doing that and then I ended up buying I started talking about investment real estate and uh the guy who owned the building that I lived in was an eight unit building with two commercial units down front. So 10 units total. And the guy who owned it ended up saying, if you, I talked to him about buying a duplex or a triplex and he said, well, why don't you just buy the building that you're in? Um, and he ended up holding the mortgage on it and I ended up buying it. And before you knew it, um, I had 53 units, um, across 14 different buildings because I can't just do anything halfway. Um, but I, that was 2004. It was when I was at my peak and I just decided 2005, I was really burned out. Um, cause I, I'd, I'd spent about three or four years building all this up. I was still cleaning. I had, I had a clothing store in there for a while. Um, I did, I like just jumped in all of that led to me getting really burned out, um, and really tired. And I was just like, you know, um, I think it's time 
I had a tenant that was giving me a really hard time that I had to evict and going through all that led to this landlord burnout. Um, so I sold everything and traveled for two years. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go travel. That's what I wanted to do. That's why I did all this. So I sold everything. I went and traveled. Um, so when I came to, yeah, to the late 2005, uh, sold everything. Good. Good. You didn't go into 2008 with it. Right. Well, that's it. So I traveled. So to late 2007, um, I'm sitting in Chicago visiting my college roommate and uh, we were in a bar downtown. We were at um, Smith and Lewinsky, which is uh, downtown prominent steakhouse. And uh, we were sitting at the bar and the guy was like, the manager was behind the bar complaining about somebody that didn't show up. And he was like, I need a bartender. Rah, rah, rah. There's no one in this town. And I was like, if you need a bartender, I was like, I'll show up. When do you, when do you need a bartender? And uh, he told me to show up on Monday. He was like, buy a tuxedo, show up on Monday. His, his name was Matty Moore. If you, uh, if you look him up on YouTube, he, oh my goodness. He's, he is a, he's a riot, a uh, horrible manager, really entertaining, just uh, crazy. Um, so I show up on Monday and he didn't remember hiring me. He had been blackout drunk, which is also normal in the restaurant industry. Um, but he was like, well, whatever you're here and I need a bartender. So you're bartending tonight. Well, that led to me, uh, working in fine dining in Chicago. Um, and then eventually led to me working in fine dining in Vail. Uh, I wanted to move to Vail, Colorado. I wanted to work at a ski resort. I lived in Chicago for about two years and, uh, loved this, loved it and then hated it because it's, it's very isolating. You also work a gazillion hours, um, to pay for it. And I lived downtown. It was great. Um, until it wasn't. And then, yeah, ended up, uh, ended up talking to Vail resorts for a different job. And then they came back to me and said, Hey, we would really like you to do this, to help us grow our fine dining program. Um, you have a lot of experience. Um, so I ended up in Vail and Vail was great. Um, absolutely loved working for them. Uh, so you work, you get three months off a year, you get two months off in the spring and one month off in the fall. So we'd always go travel. Like it allowed me to go travel. We did, um, we took trips all over the world, Asia, Central America, South America, um, Japan, like got to travel all over, see a ton of stuff. Um, got to ski a lot got to hang out in a really cool town, get to know some really good people. Um, absolutely love my time in Vail. What, what years are we talking about now? Vail from when to when? Uh, late 2008 to 2014. Got it. So Vail, ski town, Colorado, and yeah. uh, three months off a year to travel the world. That sounds, that sounds good. It's, and, it is a great job. And what did you start off as? They recruited you to do, to do what? So I was kind of, it was like a hybrid position. They didn't really have, what they had was they had a fine dining restaurant that had stopped performing. Mm -hmm. um, it had stopped doing well. And they said, what we want is we want somebody to come in and be like a hybrid maitre d slash head server slash dining room manager. Uh, and I said, okay, no problem. Like I can do that. Um, 
So I ended up like, I basically took over training. I trained on wine, I trained on drinks and I trained on customer service. And then I also took all the VIPs that came in. So all the people that would come in, I don't know how to explain it to somebody who's not in the restaurant industry. Like they make reservations and usually they have a concierge from American Express make the reservation or their assistant make the reservation. You know that their expectations are a little bit different. Um, they're looking for a different class of service. They're looking for just a different experience. Um, so I would get 99% of those people. They would they would make sure we're in my section because the thing with fine dining is you're paying. I mean, our our at the time when I got there, we were three hundred dollars a plate plus wine plus alcohol um, plus tip plus the the whole thing. Right? You can go eat down the village. We were we were on mountain dining, so you had to take the gondola up and a snow cat in. You could eat down the village for a hundred dollars a person easily, probably fifty dollars if you wanted to. Um, so when people are paying three to five times the normal dinner price, you've got to offer an experience that is something different. And that, so like, you need to know the food, you need to know the wine, you need to know the alcohol, you need to know the whole thing. But beyond that, you have to build a really quality experience and quality experience depends on the guest, not on me. Who are they? Where are they from? What are they looking for? How can I make their night memorable, fun, and an experience that the, I mean, Vale's tagline is the experience of a lifetime. Um, I, and I, I assume it takes more than disappearing a quarter or a bowl of whipped cream. Yeah. The, um, yes, it does. Um, or, or since you were also the manager, were any of the other uh, server staff kind of uh, jealous that you were you know, getting the VIPs? Was that an issue? Well, so I wasn't, I didn't manage that. I wasn't in charge of the restaurant at the time. Um, that came later. So I started off that year as they just introduced me as a head server. This guy has background. So the, the restaurant that I worked at in Chicago was the number two restaurant in the world at the time. Um, so I had, I had the chops, right? I had the background to do it. Um, and they, they knew that I was training. The other thing is um, in Vail at that restaurant, we were what's called a pooled floor. So all the tips went into one pool and they got divided amongst everybody who worked that night. Um, and they, so that actually led to a good thing. Um, it created a lot of teamwork, a lot of camaraderie. I love restaurants like that um, because everybody there usually has a higher standard of service. Um, so they didn't mind at all because I would take the VIPs and I would, I, we call it styling them out. Like I would just take care of them in a way that they weren't, no one else could. And they loved that I did that. Um, I also trained. So, I mean, part of this was I trained everyone else there to start doing the same things I did. And this led to, uh, we took the restaurant when we started in uh, 2008, we were rated 37 out of about, 55, 60 restaurants in Vail. Uh, they had really fallen off. By 2012, we were the number three restaurant in Vail. Wow. Um, and the, but, had the food changed? Had the uh, environment changed? It was just the people. 
the food changes a little bit. I mean, it changes seasonally, but the main thing was the service. Because like I said, when people are paying three to $500 for dinner for per person, mm-hmm. they're expecting an experience. And what they were delivering prior my arrival, I mean, I can't, I didn't dine there, so I don't know for sure. But prior to my arrival, what they were getting was food. Mm-hmm. By 2012, they were getting an experience. They were coming to the top of a mountain. They were having a lot of fun. They were building something that literally did last a lifetime. Um, Two questions. Yeah. First of all, you said that in restaurants where the tips are pulled, they tend to attract better quality people, better quality servers. Uh, are they attracting better people or is there something about the teamwork inspired by the pool? Is it more systemic or like what's the... So they're not attracting better servers. What happens is if you're, if you're at a restaurant where there is not a pooled floor, where it's each server's for himself, if I run past the table, if I'm walking past the table and I see they need wine or I see they need their plates cleared or they have a question, I'm going to, for the large part, ignore that as a normal person because I have my four or five tables that mm-hmm. I have to worry about. In a pooled floor, if I walk by somebody's table and they need something, I am going to at least, at the bare minimum, stop and make the guest feel heard. In fine dining, I am going to do whatever they need because in fine dining, it's set up completely different. You have like three servers per table, right? You have a head server, a back server, and a busser. Um, That's an example of the opposite of what we talked about with the school, where you know you can take an average person, put them in a great system, where the incentives are aligned properly, as mm-hmm. opposed to against the goals, like in schools, and then you have average people performing above average. Yeah, the, I mean, restaurants. The what ends up happening in a pooled floor is everybody works together, and the people who who are bad apples, the people who are not a good fit, weed themselves out. Because they, I mean, we had it happen every year. We would hire a couple. We'd hire, in that restaurant, we had between 25 and 30 front of house servers. And so we'd hire 30, and about four or five would just not work out. They would show up, and you would see that they were not the right fit. They weren't taking care of people the right way. They didn't have a team team camaraderie and but we wouldn't even really have to fire them usually they would just see that they didn't fit in and they would leave which is great um and that's that was how we built that restaurant i mean over over five and six years to be something that was amazing now you said a few times that you know people were having an experience mm-hmm what do you think these guests would say? You know, they, they, they leave, they go down the mountain, they go home to wherever they flew in from, and they're describing that evening, they're describing the experience. Do you, do you know what they might say? Um, I mean, we got, I have, I have letters still. Um, I still occasionally get an email from people. I mean, I haven't worked there since 2014, and I'll still occasionally, I would say two we're, or three times a year. We're mid-2021 right now in case that gets lost somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still occasionally get an email. I would say three or four times a year, I get an email from somebody. Um, hey, we're coming to Vail. Wondering if you still work there. Is there anything? Like, can we, like, are we going to see you? Blah, blah, blah. 
Um, the, I mean, so we, I, I got to take care of uh, Michelle Obama and she wrote a letter um, saying, you know, everybody always takes care of us when we go out, but you actually, what I had done was I Googled at the time, I looked up some stuff that was going on so that I had conversation points with her. Um, and I looked at stuff that was going on, not like political stuff that she wouldn't want to talk about, but like stuff about her kids. Um, but the, so I got a letter from her. Uh, some of the other people that would come in, they would say, so it was, it was usually a five to eight course dinner, depending on the night. We would always make sure, I would make sure that people tried food that they maybe normally wouldn't try um, by br just bringing it to the table. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, they would order whatever they ordered, but then I would bring them something extra. So at the time, not a lot of people knew what pork belly was. Um, pork belly, if you still don't know what it is, is like the best bacon you've ever had. It's super thick cut bacon prepared slightly differently. Um, but it's just amazing. So ours was done. Um, I can still remember the preparation of it, right? So we oven roasted it for 24 hours. We pan seared it in a Japanese barbecue sauce and then placed it on a apple compote with a slice of poached pear. Absolutely amazing. Um, it was the best thing on the menu, but not everybody would order it because they didn't know what it was. So I just make sure to bring it. Um, I would put one and I would make sure like we would do like a half order which would be like two bites. And I would make sure everybody on the table got some. Um, and I wouldn't usually tell them what it was unless I knew that they didn't eat pork. Um, because if you say pork belly, like people at the time didn't know what it was. This is 2009, 2010. Um, so we do that. We would greet them with champagne. That was one of the things that we started doing. And we didn't mention that anywhere. So they'd come to the top. They'd get off the snow cat. They would walk in. A normal restaurant, what do you do? You check in at the host desk. You maybe have a seat. Well, they would check in at the host desk. We would have them sit at our bar, which overlooked the entire Vale Village, like sparkling lights, right? Um, if you've never been to Colorado, especially at, you know, 10,000 feet, our restaurant was at 10,000 feet. You're looking at like the clearest night sky you've ever seen. We greet them by name, you know, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. How are you doing this evening? Um, your table is just getting prepared while well, we're hanging out for a second. Here's some champagne for you. We'd love for you to go outside, toast the night sky. I know it's a little bit cold out there. We have some heaters, but if you just take a moment and step outside, I think you'll really, really enjoy it. How many places like greet you like that? Sometimes we take them outside. If I wasn't busy, I'd walk outside with them. Um, we tried to do a little bit of research on every table that came in. So we knew something about them, at least where they were from. Um, you know, Mr. Mr. Johnson, I see that you're joining us from uh, Sacramento in Northern California. Weather's a little bit colder here, but I guarantee you don't have night skies like these. Um, why don't you step outside with me for a second? Here you go. Here's some champagne for you. People love that, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness. So like you're start the, it's a pre-frame. Um, you're starting them off on the right foot. If they didn't drink champagne, we had no big deal. I have sparkling apple cider for you, or can I get you something else you'd really enjoy drinking? Um, sometimes we do like a half sparkling apple cider, half pineapple juice. Um, so it's not as sweet, but like you do all kinds of different things. Just make their night. Um, mm -hmm. We would also take notes on them. So this is something I started at the beginning of my time there. Uh, if you're using a software system, we would all call it a CRM in marketing speak, right? 
Uh, for restaurants though, reservation system has a notes tab. Well, we started taking notes on people. What did they order? What did they like? What did they not like? And this is something that you would see happen. In Vail, a lot of times people would come for two weeks per season to ski. We would see them year after year. Well, starting year one, we would take notes. What did they like? What did they didn't like? What was their drink? Where are they from? Things they talked about. And we put those in this database. When they'd show up the next year, how, how's little Susie doing? Did she enjoy her tennis lessons? Stuff like that. And they would be like, you remember that? Well, I'm not telling you that I wrote it down, right? I'm just telling you I reviewed it. Like, and but people would get that's why I still get letters. People remember that, right? Mm -hmm. Um and so you, I would, you would you would you and others uh would sit down, you know, earlier in the day and review the reservations and look up the notes and uh and did anyone else uh, have uh, are you still skilled at memory like you used to be? Pretty much. Uh, it's it's not quite as sharp. Um, I'm in my mid-40s now, so it's in my you memory. Did, you, did train, you, you did train it. And I guess if you yeah. taught yourself that, then then I could learn it too, I suppose, right? I mean... Everybody can learn it. I mean, it's literally just... It takes effort. Yeah. Effort. And you you have it has to be something that's important to you. But the way... So the way we would do it is... Mm -hmm. So everyone who came into the restaurant had to have a reservation. It was a reservation-only restaurant. So we know something about them. We have, we have their name, we have their contact info, we have their stuff. Um, I would, and what I trained everybody to do is just write down one or two little things that you hear as well as their order and all of that gets saved, right? Like not their entire order, but their main course, uh, if they really liked something, right? If they really liked the wine, if they really liked uh, the pork belly, something like that. Uh, the, the whole thing, um, was just, it was all about building experience, getting to know people. And that, that changed that restaurant because people started to notice that very quickly. And that's the whole, I mean, we, I remember one of the, the first year there, I got in a huge argument with the chef because the chef made uh, foie gras ice cream. So foie gras is fatty duck liver. It is great with a steak. It did not work all that well as ice cream, but I understand he was being creative. It's totally fine, whatever. I had a, vet, a guest who just didn't like it. Like it came out and he didn't like it. And I took it back to the kitchen and the, the chef, he was passionate. Um, he wasn't trying to be too difficult, but he was like, no, that's what I made. That's what goes with this course. That's what they're eating. And I was like, look, man, it's about their experience. It's not about what you want to do. You can try that, but if they still say no, if they've tried it, which he did, the dude tried it, he didn't like it. Let's give him something he likes because it's more about him leaving saying that was amazing than they tried to make me eat foie gras ice cream and it tasted like crap. But chefs, like this is the, it, this translates directly to marketing. Because there are so many marketers out there who say, nope, this is how I do it. And this is how they're going. Like it's ego-based marketing. It's me, me, right. me, me. That's not what it's about. It's about your customer saying, oh my goodness, that person gets me. That person likes me. That person can help me get that outcome. Um, yeah. And, and like, you know, like you've been saying, the word, 
experience. It's, it's yeah. an experience. The whole thing. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Was that, uh, was that argument uh, going on while the, the customer was waiting outside? Is there was, uh... Well, so what ended up happening from it? Uh, the guy's name was Jason. And Jason was like, I'm not doing it. And I said, well, all right, cool. So I went behind the line and made my own dessert um, for the guy. Like I knew what to make. I knew where everything was. And Jason like is yelling at me. I walk out to the guy's table and I put it down. So we, um, we had a poached pear bread pudding that was amazing. It came with sal uh, salted caramel gelato that we made in house. Um, and the, the guy told me, he was like, I just have a real sweet tooth. And like this ice cream is more like a savory. Um, and he knew food. So I was like, okay, I got you. Like, that's all I said, right? I said, I totally got it. And I brought him this. I described it to him. And I was like, tell me what you think. If it's not right, we'll, we'll keep doing something else. And here's, um, here's some, I can't remember the wine. It was a Saltern. Uh, so a dessert wine. I was like, it pairs great with it. Um, enjoy. Like totally made his night. And he was like, this is exactly what I wanted. So Jason's in the back, like sulking. And I just ignored Jason till the end of the night. And then I pulled him aside and I was like, dude, it's not about like your name's on the menu and people are coming in enjoying your food. But if they really don't like it, it's our job to give them something that they do like and that that resonates with them. And I think he he kind of understood it. I mean, they unfortunately in chef school, they they teach you, you know, like you, it's your job to put your spin on things. Well, that's true up until a point if they're not having a good time, if the guest isn't having a good time, it's better to send them. We always said, send them down the mountain smiling. So that was the other thing that we did. Um, we made sure to walk guests to the door leaving. So when they got up to leave, well, we would pull out their chair for them. When they would sit down, we'd pull out their chair for them. We'd push it in, make sure they have a nice, nice night. Right. I still do that when I go on dates and you'd be surprised how many women are like, they've never had that done for them. They don't know what to do with themselves. That's a different story. Um, but we'd walk them to the door. Then they're, they're taking a snowcat down the mountain. Then they're taking a gondola down to the bottom. So we would send them down with hot chocolate, hand warmers, like make them leave on cloud nine, because that's like, that's when they're thinking all of that stuff. You asked some really good questions. Cause that's like, this is stuff nobody at the time was thinking about. Now restaurants have kind of caught on that you'd be be surprised how many of them are still super lazy and don't do this stuff. But we did everything in our power to make them talk about the meal. We even went so far. If I knew they had a dinner reservation at another restaurant, if they were a VIP, I would call the other restaurant. Sorry about that. That's my alarm. I would call the other restaurant and I would get them wine or I would get them like I'd have them greeted with something or I would do something at another restaurant for them. And that's, that's also kind of unheard of, but it makes the other restaurant look like a rock star and it makes us look good. Um, we did, we did really, really well with that, that whole thing, but that's what led, go ahead. And, and you started off in the roles that you said, like head server, dining room manager. Uh, and I forgot what the other thing was, but a uh, combination, right? Training. Yeah. Uh, training. And, and then they, they promoted you over time. I mean, your, your role changed, I believe. Yep. I went from that to um, the manager and then I went to helping with other restaurants, helping with the training program for all of Vail Fine Dining. Um, and then we started building. So out of this, we started building VIP events. Uh, so we had corporations would bring 
like their C-suite, right? Anywhere between like 20 to maybe 100 people, 150 people um, to Vail for events. Well, we started saying, well, what can we do to really blow the socks off of these guys? Um, so we started holding, you know, like take them on a snowmobile trip, take them on snowshoeing, take them, bring them to different places for dinner. Let's do stuff that makes us stand out and really, really wow them. Um, they'll so you spend were thinking beyond your restaurant, right? You were thinking beyond your restaurant to veil the experience of being here as a vacation destination. Correct. But in a corporate setting. Um, so this is no longer thinking rest like just restaurant. It's right. how can we, how can we really, because honestly how this started, we had a group that came and they rented out our space and, um, did a corporate, a normal corporate event. But I said, we need to do the same thing. Like these are C like, I think it was a group of like 30 or 40 people. So we learned their names and we learned like some stuff about them. We greeted them differently. And like the, the guy at the end, um, it was actually the owner of GoPro, um, came up and shook my hand. And he was like, we've never been taken care of like this. He was like, this is great. And that got me thinking about like, how can we, do this even better next year? How can we make sure that they come back every year and spend a fortune to have an amazing experience? Because that's what corporations like true, true, like game changing corporations, especially at that time, were looking for the experiential, like we need to take our group and go do something, get them out of the office. So we started doing like brainstorming events and like building all the stuff that got like taking them ski biking, um, taking them snowshoeing, doing snowmobile tours, like all of this stuff and started building that up. I just wanted to take a short break from this episode and let you know about one of the biggest secrets I have found when it comes to converting webinars. If you have a webinar and it's not converting as well as you want, or if you're thinking about building a webinar and you want to grab this tip, it has helped numerous people. One of my clients, we actually doubled their conversion rate just by implementing this one simple step. And you can grab it at deathtobadwebinars.com or by clicking in the show notes below. All right, let's jump back to the episode. Ski biking? Ski biking. Uh, ski biking. It's a, it's a thing. I'm trying to think how to describe it. Just take the tires of the bike and you replace them with skis. So you're sitting down, you have two handlebars and you have two skis that are uh, not side by side, but they're yeah, one in front of back. the other. It's uh, it's kind of fun. <laughs> kind of fun. Okay. There's Regular no pedaling. Skiing? Got it's, it. It's down the mountain, but it's, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's a different way to experience the mountain. I think it's, uh, I think it's potentially pretty dangerous, but it was, it's fun at the same time. Got it. Okay. So 2014 comes and, um, what happens? Like what, what, what leads you to move on and where do you go? Yeah. So I went to a Tony Robbins event. Um, I, I kind of reached Tony Robbins event. Well, I kind of reached my peak at Vail. I'd gone as far as, as things we're going to go there um, and kind of reach my pay, my pay grade. Um, and I mean, there's, there just comes a time when you've done what you can. Um, I started like thinking, you know, I want to do more. I want to do something else. Um, and that led to, I went to a Tony Robbins event and I came back 
Um, and I was just like, you know, I want to be on stage. I want to be, I want to be speaking in front of people. And that led, that led me leaving Vail. Um, I moved to Las Vegas and I decided I was going to hold a live event. So I went down to Treasure Island and uh, I knew enough of the terminology because I've been running all these events and doing BEOs, uh, event orders. Um, I knew how to talk to them. And I said, well, you know, I want the largest ballroom. Um, so I rented the space for 15 to 1800 people, um, signed, signed this ginormous contract, just thinking like, yeah, this is easy. This is going to be simple because I knew how to run that side. Right. I just thought all the events that I'd ran at Vail, people showed up because they had booked them. They had come to us. I thought I'll just hold an event. People will buy, um, led to me ended up, I burned through like over $30,000 in marketing and trying to hold this event, uh, had two people register and had to cancel the event, lost all my money. Um, but it was a great learning experience. That's like a $15,000, uh, um, cost Cost of sale, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yep. It was, uh, I mean, it was that whole thing was, um, what, what do you charge for tickets? Uh, well, they started off at nine ninety seven. They dropped to four ninety seven. Then they dropped two ninety seven. Then they dropped to ninety seven. Uh, the two sales that I got were at two ninety seven, I believe. Um, but it was that whole thing was. You can you know you could lose money in every sale and make it up in volume, right? <laughs> not, not it was not like that. well, I mean it. It's one of the fallacies that marketers believe people don't buy by price. People could care less yeah. about price. They say it's important, but in reality, price is the third or fourth thing down on the list. The most important thing is, will this get me the result that I want? Number one. Number two, do I trust the person selling it? If those two things are yes, price becomes highly irrelevant. Um, people buy by emotion. This is a this is one of the most understated, most important things of marketing. People buy based on emotion. If you get an emotional response from somebody, positive or negative, they will buy. Even like when I say negative, think about Howard Stern, right? People that like Howard Stern listen for two to three hours a day. People who hate Howard Stern listen for four to five because they have an emotional reaction. So they can dislike you. But if they believe that it will get the result that they want, they can still buy. I, w- I would go for a positive emotional reaction over negative. But at the end of the day, an emotional reaction is better than vanilla. But nobody gets that. Yeah, got that. Um, I mean, that's that's true in some industries. I mean, it, it, the the I mean, in terms of some industries having you know you, you know you got to have that polarizing uh, you, you've got to make waves uh, because that's just part of the game uh yeah. it's not for everybody it's not not my personality to do that um and you wouldn't want to do that as the head of fine dining uh at a you know a, a restaurant in vale um i imagine but well, uh, but if you're a talk show host uh, it's part of the game well let's look at i mean if you look at restaurants look at gordon ramsay right hell's kitchen yeah. polarizing there are people who do not like his demeanor. They don't like him as a person, but they still want to eat his food, right? Okay. I that's, I mean, point. that's the, the thought process to your, you guys are getting to know Dove a little bit here during this interview process. 
I mean, you, you definitely take care of people. You're a quality over quantity and you want to make sure that people have a great experience. That is, that is good and polarizing in and of itself, because there are people out there that will argue and say, you need to have quantity over quality, or you can have both. I don't believe you can have both. You can have one or other. You can't have both. I, it's, mm -hmm. I don't believe it. I, you can't show me one business that has both. Um, the, the idea is that you're willing to take a stand on something and not everybody yes. is going to agree with that stance Absolutely. and that is a hundred percent okay got it i completely agree so you burned through thirty thousand dollars to acquire two customers at a cost of uh, 2.99 each and you said you learned a lot so what did you learn and what did you do next well i mean i learned that people don't and by the way what were up. you going to talk about what, what was you said you want to do public speaking what were you how was it a, a multi-day event that you were promoting what was it meant to be and so it was uh it was a two-day event. Um, it was called the Ultimate Restaurant Summit. I wish I, I still have the I still have screenshots of the web page somewhere. Um, the Ultimate Restaurant Summit. I had eighteen people speaking, so I basically reached out to everyone that I knew in restaurants and I said, "Hey, like this is what not to do for an event." Um, I just said, "Hey, like we're going to throw an event. Come speak." No, no topics, no headlines, uh, which is why nobody bought, right? There's no outcome. I wasn't offering any kind of outcome. Um, 18 speakers. I was going to speak on customer service, uh, but that was literally the title, like ultimate customer service. Why does anyone want, they don't want ultimate customer service. They want ultimate customer retention, how to charge more prices. Like I know all these things now, but I didn't know them then. Um, so I, I learned that the the big takeaway that I then learned from Dan Kennedy, but it, it is definitely the big takeaway, is it's not about the thing that you're doing. It is about the marketing of the thing that you're doing. It's not about having a restaurant. It's about marketing the restaurant. It's not about holding an event. It's about marketing the event. It's not about the thing. It's about the marketing of the thing because without the marketing, what does that mean? Cause it's, you, you didn't say what I expected you to say. I thought that you were going to say, it's not about the thing. It's a, I was thought you were going to say it's about the outcome, which you, it is earlier. about the outcome. It, the outcome is what drives the marketing, right? Why do people buy something? It's because they're looking for the outcome. So your marketing all has to be outcome derived. What is the outcome? So if I would have ran the restaurant event on how to double your the amount of reservations, triple your income, and hire better employees, right? If I was just off the top of my head, that is way better marketing than what I had at the time. Instead, at the time, I was just talking about it's the ultimate restaurant summit. What does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. We have 18 speakers. Who cares? Nobody cares about any of that stuff, but that's what, if I went back to the marketing that I was sending at the time, that was all the marketing. So my takeaway was Wait. that I needed outcomes. I needed to have, mm -hmm. I needed to have better marketing that was driven off of the outcomes. The way, the way I talk about it is, and it's the same idea, uh, very much the same. Uh, I, I, you know, I also studied, Dan Kennedy, uh, Jay Abraham, and I don't remember who else back in the early days. 
and I kind of distilled things I learned from them or wherever, I don't remember. Uh, and just with my own experience, I realized that the first job in marketing is to get the attention and interest of your ideal client or customer. You have to get their attention and their interest. And I realized that attention and interest are not the same thing. A lot of things could get attention. You know, loud noise will get your attention. And then you go back to what you were doing, right? Uh, you can pass, you know, maybe you're at a, a convention or a conference and you're passing through the exhibitor booth. A lot of things might get your attention, but in order to get your interest, interest means that, that you say, you know, we're walking through these booths and you say, hey, Dove, let's go over there and have a look, right? So you change your plans. You, you change course. You're going straight and we turn left or right so that we can see, wait, 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 that gets not just our attention, but our interest. And that's what we're trying to get. You know, we want to get someone's attention about the, the, you know, the summit, whatever it was called, whatever you would have called it. Uh, and then interest that they say, well, oh, I was planning to be home this weekend, but instead I'm going to go to Vegas for this event. And I realized that, well, what is it that gets people's attention and interest? And I realized that it's uh, only two things. If you talk about a problem they have and don't want, and or if you talk about a result they want and don't have. And that's uh, the same thing you're talking about. Is, is, and that was the big, you know, looking backwards, right? That was the big lesson is that I, I wasn't talking about a problem they had and don't want. I wasn't talking about a result they want and don't have. I was talking about something that I was excited about, like that you're passionate about. It, it, was, it was like your foie gras ice cream. Right. You know, in a sense. That's very, and very. People are going to eat it. Yep. That's, I mean, that is exactly it. Um, I mean, there, we could go, we could go for a long time talking about that, but that's, I think that when people aren't selling, when people aren't having a successful business as a coach or a consultant, it's because of this, even like, mm -hmm. as far as like dentists, chiropractors, any service provider, anyone who is selling, if they're not getting the results that they want, it's because they're not focusing on that. I would agree. Yeah. They're not focusing on, you know, meeting the customer where they are and, and, People are where they think they are, right? So, and what are we all thinking about? We're only thinking about a problem that we have and don't want or a result we want and don't have. A result breaks down into a change we want and don't have, an experience we want and don't have, right? Yeah. And, and you know, you were giving experiences uh, at, at the restaurant in Vail and um, you know, people will come, in, will come to your event if you can solve their problem, get their result. So th th that was really good. So you, you did something remarkable though, that, you know, you came out of a corporate job, which it was, although it was a rather unique corporate job. Uh, you weren't like sitting behind a desk. Um, right. uh, so, and, and you moved on to uh, go to Vegas and you made, took this big risk on yourself. And how does, let's now, you know, we may have to do part two one day, but let's catch up to where you are now. Now, how did you get from there to where you are now, where you're focused on helping people sell one too many through webinars, I believe, right? I mean, that's, uh, uh, I'm sure you do in-person events too. You were doing that until COVID, right? So just give us a, an accelerated catch up. Sure. Like I mean, we were going through all the 48 sta states, you know, I, I, I remember <laughs> reading Travels with Charlie, right? By what's his name? Um, uh, what's his name? I haven't read uh, that. Travel with that. Charlie, yeah. Uh, oh, it was a great book. What I remember, though, is that um, uh, John, oh, come on. Uh, anyway, I'm sure many people listening could look it up or, or they know it rather. I'm not going to try to look it up now. Um, so 
he goes like the first half of the book or three quarters of the book is, is just real slow and detailed. And then I felt like the, the last part was like rushing through, you know, another 15 States. So uh, I hope that we don't give that feeling now, but what are you doing now? And then perhaps we'll come back another time to fill in some details. Sure. Um, the, I mean, basically I went from that event and I got involved that led to like me learning marketing. Um, I ended up getting involved with Dan Kennedy and Jay Abraham uh, as well. And then Frank Kern and the Russell Brunson at ClickFunnels um, started holding a lot of live events and speaking on a lot of stages. Uh, it was not easy at first, but I just put my head down and I figured it out. Anything worth knowing takes a little while. Um, but over over the last like what, seven years. What wasn't easy? None of it. I what mean, wasn't easy? None of it. For example. I mean, they're getting on people's stages. You have to reach out to a lot of people, okay. especially when you're getting started. Even if you have a speaker reel, right. if you haven't, if you don't have at least three or four event organizers that are going to vouch for you, you're not going to get on people's stages very easily. Holding events. Um, so that initial next, breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. Holding events. That next event that I held um, after the one that failed, I had to go around. I mean, it was 80 people instead of 15 to 1800. Um, I had to learn how to sell from stage. I had to learn the whole marketing game. I had to learn mm -hmm. copywriting. I had to learn what good advertising looks like. I had to learn how to use follow-up sequences. I mean, there's, I go on and on and on, but then, I mean, that led to me building a very successful business based on helping people get on stage. So 2017, um, I moved away from selling, uh, at the time it was Facebook marketing, um, and consulting services. And we moved into helping people hold live events and craft their message for the stage. Uh, because the thing is, if you're not selling, if you're not getting your message out, if you're not getting a wide number of people in the top of your funnel, right? And funnel is very loose term. It doesn't just mean online. It means if you're not influencing mm -hmm. a large number of people and putting your message out so they can see it and say, oh, I want to know more or I don't, you're never going to really break through like the six figure mark. It's almost impossible because you're not going to be able to get in front of enough people. So how do you get in front of more people? You need to get your message out. So this could be webinars. This could be live events. This could be speaking on other people's stages. This could be doing group trainings through zoom. It could be a lot of different things, but you Podcast. have to get the message out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. And, and one thing I know that you talk about a lot or help people with is telling better stories. And uh, anybody who's still listening uh, has heard some great stories from you today. Um, do you think that it's just that you have unique stories to tell, which is true, I'm sure, to some degree? What about what do you tell a client of yours who says, well, I just don't have any, I mean, interesting stories? Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Or you know, do you say, yeah, you're boring and I can't help you? Or, or do you find that you can pull it out of them somehow? Um, I do not agree, do not agree that people don't have great stories. Everybody has good stories. You just, when you're really close to them, you don't see them. I mean, to me, I don't see the stories as being like this groundbreaking thing, right? But I know that other people do. I think that's the, the difference. Um, anyone who is not you is going to find things from your life interesting um, because mm -hmm. we all live 
like we all have a different point of view on stuff. We all have things that are different. We all have stuff that's going on. The key, the key that I would say is have an outcome that people want. If you have an outcome that people want. So when I talk about working for Vail, if I talk about the travel aspect of it, most people that want to travel will think that is a really cool story and they'll want to hear more about it. Um, if people like food, I want to talk about like the great food that we did there. Um, so have an outcome that people want around the story, but everybody has stuff that is interesting and positive and like people want to hear about. You just need to, to distance yourself just a little bit so that you can get it out. And, and then your focus now is on helping people scale with webinars. And there are a lot of people teaching webinars and so on, but there are also a lot of people running restaurants or trying to run restaurants. I imagine that you have taken that same attitude that you brought to getting those Air Jordans, the same attitude that you brought to uh, mowing lawns, same attitude you brought to, um, yeah, going back to school, you know, beginning with the rather unique psychology trip, which I had a lot of questions about that, but we'll, we'll have to come back to that another time. Um, same attitude that you brought to running the restaurants, bartending, and so on. Um, you're able to bring that. Is, is, there, is that something you've been able to apply to the um, digital, you know, online world of webinars? Is that like, can you really create an experience? What is that like? Uh, I'll just say that we we are kind of pressed for time, and you know, you and I are both trying to. Uh, we're going to wrap it up, but I want to make sure that we can bring in that point here. Sure. Are you helping create experiences on a webinar? Is that something you're doing? Yes. So one of the main things that we have done differently is approach the webinar more like from a live event standpoint. There are a lot of different things that we do. We make them more interactive. Uh, we make them very, very story-based. So I broke down more than a thousand webinars at this point um, and presentations. Oh, wow. um, some of them more in-depth than others. Uh, but I will tell you that a good presentation has more than 50, five zero stories. So those stories, some of them are long, some of them are 10, 15, 20 seconds, but they're all stories. They're all parables. They all get people to picture things and see the experience. And they're much more relational. Um, the biggest thing that I tell people, they're like, oh, I, what's the one thing that I need to know is it's not about what you teach. It's about how you engage people. If you think about We'll leave with this example, I think. If you think about your favorite teacher from high school or college, and you think about your least favorite, your least favorite teacher taught three times as much as your most favorite. And if you are honest with yourself, your favorite teacher, you can still probably remember something that they taught you, whereas everything that the, quote, bad teacher, boring teacher, the teacher that taught all the time, you probably can't remember much. Mm -hmm. That's because the teacher that was your favorite teacher was more engaging and got to know you. It was more about personality and experience than teach, teach, teach. But and we you just demonstrated that what you just did now, that was a, a story. Exactly. It's a kind of story. It's it, different than the story of, of the foie gras ice cream. But it's a kind of story. Correct. And the fact that you've broken that down, I think, is, is very valuable. Where can I learn more about what you have? 
Yeah, sure. So I have, if you guys have listened to all of this and you want to hear more, um, we probably will do a part two, but you can go to stories that scale.com that will get you a storytelling blueprint that you can use. It will help you build any story that you want. Uh, if you're interested in webinars, you can go to death to bad webinars.com death to bad webinars, and that will give you a webinar training, uh, that will show you how to build a webinar that is completely different from anything else on the market. Well, um, I've uh, registered for that when we spoke first last week. First time we ever talked was a few days ago. Uh, now, I'm actually going to go look at it closely because now I have a much richer idea of, of where it's coming from. And, and that just really uh, makes it clear to me that uh, I've got a lot to learn. Um, and I appreciate you sharing all that you have. Thank you, Steve. No problem. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. Um, to everybody listening, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, this has been something a little bit different. I'm, I'm sure it's been very worthwhile. Awesome. Well, to everybody out there, until our second part of this interview, take action, change lives, make money, and we will see you next time. Thanks for checking out today's show. Do you want the fast and easy Cliff Notes version of the actionable steps from today's episode? If so, go to actionbullets.com and download yours today. Also, if you're looking to start using story selling in your business and have stories do 90% of the hard work for you, grab my free course at storyselling.how today. Till next time, take action, change lives, and make money. We'll see you soon.